Thanks for joining the DermVet podcast. I'm Dr. Ashley Bourgeois, a board-certified veterinary dermatologist. Also, a mom of two trying to find the balance just like everyone else. Let's learn to ditch the itch, cytology, everything, and make derm more fun than frustrating. Hello, hello. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the Derm Vet Podcast. Today, we are going to be talking about how to take a dermatology history. One of the most important and really truly the first step in working up your dermatology cases is taking a good quality history. And I really believe that you can take a good quality history in a concise way. I know history taking can seem cumbersome, especially for a dermatology patient, but you can have, you know, dermatology forms, history taking by your technician or your receptionist that can really help fill in some of these gaps when you are trying to see these patients quickly. So I'm going to go over a lot of different uh, different questions you can ask and different ways to kind of guide the conversation as you're talking to the owner. But just remember that take a step back and think of this as just a conversation with the owner as you're looking over the patient and think of ways that you can integrate this into your actual exam. So it doesn't seem like you have to necessarily be spending an hour just talking about the history. You can really pinpoint some of these questions and conversations while you're actually doing your exam and saving time. But truly history taking is so important, especially in dermatology, because a lot of our workups are on different cases that can have very similar presentations. Lots of different allergies can look the same. You can have comorbidities. Certain patients can have different endocrinopathies and allergies. Plus you have infections on top of everything. So it can be really overwhelming and you can really use some guided questions to make the diagnosis or at least knowing what test should come up first in your diagnostic workup easier. So let's dive into some of the main questions that we talk about. And obviously it can be an endless list, but I really wanted to highlight some of the things I feel like can be important when taking a history in a dermatologic patient. So first of all, it's important to know what the presenting complaint is. What is the client most concerned about? This can really vary depending on the animal and there can be other things going on, but it's important to know what the owner is most concerned about. So let me give you an example just today. I saw a case referred to me from the ophthalmology department and their presenting complaint was nails. The nails all of a sudden were becoming dystrophic. They were starting to flake apart. They're starting to split. And I truly think it's a dog that probably has symmetrical lupoid onychodystrophy. Beyond that, I knew that was their main concern, but as I kept taking history and filling in the gaps, this is also a bulldog that has a history, a long history of allergies. And I truly think a food and environmental allergic patient. So even though I know that was the presenting complaint and that's where we need to focus our time and efforts today, I made sure to plant the seeds of the things we need to work on in the future to really get this patient under control. But because I knew what the presenting complaint was and the main complaint was for that owner, 
I could really kind of pinpoint and make sure I was relieving that stress and that concern for them, even though I didn't want to necessarily ignore the other issues. So get an idea of what brings the owner in for that day. Even if you find other problems, we want to know what their main concern is. You can still address those other issues and you want to bring them up when you do your full dermatologic exam. But if you have an idea what their primary concerns are, you can make that a focus so the owner doesn't feel neglected when you see all these other things that could pop up. One of the main things that we want to identify when talking to these owners is how long has the problem been going on? Do not let a client just say forever or they've always been itchy because that doesn't really tell us anything. When a client says, you know, say I'm seeing a six-year-old golden retriever that's licked their paws forever, quote unquote, from the client. I'll ask them, okay, well, when did you first start noticing it? Like, was this a puppy at eight weeks of age that was chewing its paws? Or did this just start truly like when they were two years old? Because that can make a big difference in where I'm starting to lean as far as my workup. So you really want to pinpoint those things and don't let a client give a really vague answer like, oh, it's been going on forever. Oh, it's it's been going on since I can even remember. If it truly has been going on since they're a puppy, we want to identify that versus just a vague answer like forever. A younger patient, so a patient who truly did have issues when they were six months of age, even though they're middle age now, could give us a higher suspicion of something like allergies or ectoparasites. If you're seeing a 10-year-old dog, and even though it seems like forever that they've been having these issues, but when you truly talk to the owner, it's only been going on for a year or two, maybe we're more worried about something like neoplasia or an endocrine disorder with a secondary infection. So if you are suspecting something like an allergic patient, look for other clinical signs that might have been present earlier. So if an owner says, oh, they've been licking their paws forever, but then you actually find out that it really just started when they're about three years of age, but they've actually had ear infections since they were six months of age, that could give us an indication of something going on. So you really want to pinpoint the certain things that the owner's concerned about, the particular clinical signs, because you can have clinical signs such as ear infections in paw chewing happen at different times, but it could still be an indication of something like an early onset food allergy. A dog that's presenting for non-seasonal paw chewing could have started when they were three years of age, but again, they had issues like diarrhea when they were younger. So those are things that we really want to make sure we're identifying separately in those cases because sometimes for owners, it's so overwhelming. They've been seeing numerous vets for these issues that it all starts to muddle together. And until you really ask those directed questions, they might not give you that differentiating factor. Another thing I like to ask owners, especially because we see a lot of patients who come in for, you know, itchy or redness or rash, is what's the first clinical sign they notice? So if I have a dog come in or a cat come in and they are just red and chewing themselves apart and they have a lot of hair loss, I ask owners, what's the first thing that you notice? Is it that the animal is really itchy? Is it that their hair just starts falling out? Is it that they have a rash? Do they get an ear infection first? There's an old saying that um, goes, is it a rash that itches or an itch that causes a rash? 
And that can be a really important differentiating factor, right? Because if we have an itchy dog and they just chew and chew and chew, and then after a few weeks of chewing, owners start to notice they always develop a rash that has to get treated. That can be different than, say, an animal that develops a rash and really isn't itchy until that rash has been going on for a while. Maybe then we're suspicious of other things that could be going on, like truly a hypothyroid dog that develops an infection, and it's the infection that starts causing them to itch, not necessarily the primary problem. So you do want to know the order in which these issues happen because we do have this cycle of clinical symptoms that we see in our field. A lot of itchy pets, a lot of pets with rashes, but if we don't really identify what order things are happening, it may cloud our diagnostic workup. So definitely figuring that out and asking specific questions about the the progress of these clinical signs or the order that they happen can be really, really helpful. Next is we want to know the disease progression. This is something that we really, especially in allergic patients, want to figure out and work up because it's very typical for a patient that has atopic dermatitis to have pruritus that could start out seasonal, but then progress to being non-seasonal and the symptoms can get a lot more severe. So an owner could come in and it might be a middle-aged animal and they're complaining that there is a non-seasonal pruritus. But when I start asking about the history, it's pretty common for us to hear, well, they used to just chew their paws in the spring, but the last like three or four years, now it's just been year round or it used to be pretty mild. It would happen, you know, once or twice a year, but I could control it with, you know, bathing and just keeping an eye on them and distracting them. But now they're just constantly licking their paws because we do know allergies often tend to get worse as these pets get older. So it could be that they truly are an atopic patient that as times progressed and their immune systems got more and more ramped up, now they've developed additional seasonal allergies that we've gotten to the point that it's just year round. So really digging into that history, even if they are presenting to you as being non-seasonal, ask about was there been any progression of the disease? Has it gotten worse as they've gotten older? Are we seeing new seasons pop in? Are we seeing worse lesions on the pet? Are we seeing the pruritus be worse as they've gotten older? Or has this been something that's just always been there since a young age and has been the same severity as as the years have gone on? Because you do want to pay attention to things like, could there be new clinical signs that are starting to occur? So besides the fact that maybe they just lick their paw every spring and summer, maybe they did that for a few years, but now they're getting horrific ear infections on top of everything. So you want to look at the different types of clinical symptoms they could have besides them just having one clinical symptom that could be happening at a more seasonal frequency, maybe they're having other clinical signs that have started popping up that were never there historically. As you're doing your physical exam, you also want to be talking to the owners about the locations of lesions or pruritus that they're seeing. So besides what you're seeing clinically with your own eyes as you're examining the pet, ask the owner about the, about certain things. So for locations of pruritus, if I'm examining them and I see that maybe the dorsal lumbosacral uh, region is a bit inflamed, I will ask them, well, do you specifically see the pet lick or chew at this area? 
year round, just certain times of year. Because obviously if we see lesions on the dorsal lumbal sacral area, we're worried there could be a flea allergy. If there's a lot of redness on the paws and a dog you're examining, you know, that could be food allergy or atopy or a combination of both of those. But the really tricky thing and why I like to ask about different types of pruritus, and it's very common for our allergic patients to have several different types of allergies. And that can make things really tricky because as you're trying to work them up and figure out the different lesions and the different clinical signs the owners are noticing, if we don't get all of those factors identified and worked up and treated, sometimes the patients will never seem to get better. So for example, if you have a pet and you're just focusing on the paws and you don't really ask about, well, there's a seasonal component to some itching towards the rump that we're also seeing, which flea allergy can do. It can sometimes show a seasonal fluctuation based on the flea population in your region. They may seem to not respond to certain anti-inflammatories like Apoquil or steroids, if we didn't actually get them on good flea control at the same time. So that's why asking about these different areas of, of lesionality or pruritus can be important so we can get those multifactorial dogs really, really figured out. So make sure we know the exact locations. Don't accept owners just saying, oh, they itch everywhere. You know, obviously sometimes you can have diffusely itchy dogs, but really try when you're taking your history to pinpoint the specific regions when it is happening during the year, what they are seeing, and that will really help you hone in on these difficult cases that have multiple different types of allergies, or they have a new issue pop up. So, you know, they used to chew their paws all the time, but now they're breaking out with infections on their belly a lot, and it's a middle-aged dog, and actually if you dive deeper into the history of this non-seasonal issue, they developed hypothyroidism later in life. Those are the things that we want to pop um, up in our history by evaluating the different areas of the body that may have changed with their lesions. Obviously things like we talked about seasonality or if the animals change location. So say they've moved from a certain part of the country to another part of the country and noticed within a pretty quick amount of time that there were lesions or symptoms that have worsened. Of course, if there is a seasonal component, it's pretty indicative of atopy, though there's other things like we talked about. Flea allergy sometimes can be a bit tricky and seem seasonal depending on where you live because like where we are in Oregon, where I practice, fleas are pretty year round. We don't freeze well enough for them to go away, but there can be certain times of year where they surge a little bit more. So, you know, fall and spring, sometimes we will see a bit more active flea allergies, even though fleas are active technically year round here. With owners moving around so much nowadays, you can sometimes see symptoms worse in certain geographic locations. So if they have moved around a lot, you definitely want to see if they saw any worsening, though you can still have atopic dermatitis even if a change in environment hasn't shown any change in severity of the disease because certainly things like dust mite allergies are going to be prevalent everywhere and there are certain pollens that are pretty common in most locations. The other thing I will say about looking at things like seasonality um, or changes in lesion severity during certain times of year, if you are seeing a patient that's previously been seen by another veterinarian or has been worked up before, be really, really careful about where steroids have been used. I have seen cases, and I feel like this happens a lot in my feline patients that may get uh, more long-acting steroid injections 
the owners forget that they were having issues during certain times of year because they got that steroid injection. And in their mind, all of a sudden there was no lesions present, say in March, April, May, but that's because they got an injection at the end of February of Depomedrol. So you have to be careful seeing those long acting steroid injections or if they were giving a pill, because sometimes in the mind owners will think, well, they didn't show any signs. They weren't really itchy during those few months, but actually it's because those symptoms were masked by a steroid or an anti-inflammatory medication. So you really want to comb through that history. And the nice thing is you can kind of comb through that history if you have it ahead of time before you even see the client. So you can really ask about those particular things. But I've seen that a lot where owners will come in and say, oh, you know, they're just seasonal. It only happens, you know, twice a year. But when I look back, the times that the owner thought the animal was doing great, they had actually gotten a steroid injection at that time. And so when you ask them about that, they'll start to realize, oh yeah, that's right. They were treated for that. And then maybe there truly is not a seasonal component and they just had it in their mind that there was one because they didn't see those signs during certain times of year. Talking about steroids and other medications that they have had historically, the next thing that you really want to be asking the owners about is response to medications. And this includes things like therapeutic diets. So does the patient respond to things like steroids historically? What about when they've gotten antibiotics? Do they get them both at the same time? So sometimes owners will say, oh yeah, steroids always seem to work, but they've always gotten cephalexin at the same time. So it's hard to know if they really just had an infection that was happening or if they truly did need both. So you have to be really careful if a suspected secondary infection could have been there because I have had owners very commonly say, oh, they never responded to Apoquil. They never responded to Cytopoint. They never responded to steroids. But then I'll do a cytology and remember, go back to episode one, cytology, I can bring back in anything I talk about in dermatology. I'll do a cytology and there'll just be rip roaring amounts of bacteria or yeast. And then the question is, well, maybe they would do great on those medications if we got that secondary infection cleaned up. So take your time to really talk to owners about that. Ask them about the response they've seen clinically to medications at home because sometimes it really can be helpful. Maybe they did respond to one anti-inflammatory better than the other. But if they say that nothing has worked, really look through that history and see if they've ever been treated for a secondary infection, especially if you are seeing signs of that right now because it's not uncommon at all for the infections if they're present to really mask the improvement they may see from those therapies. On, the, on that note, uh, when you are talking to clients about diet trials done previously, and diet trials can be really, really frustrating for owners, and a lot of owners will think something simple like changing the brand name of food or just doing various different protein types, but it was never a novel protein or it was never a prescription hydrolyzed diet. It wasn't a really true quality diet. They'll just say blanketed statements like, well, I've already changed the food a bunch of times. I never saw an improvement. But then if you really, really, really get specific of, well, what diet was it? Was it truly, really strict? And I'm talking strict as in, were they still on flavored supplements? Were they still on flavored flea controls? Um, did they still get table scraps? Did they chew on rawhides at home? Because that is pretty common that a strict 
strict, and you can't see my air quotes, but I'm air quoting strict, um, diet trial was really not strict at all. I had an example of this today, actually. A client that I saw a month ago had been started on Altamino a month before they came to see me. They didn't feel like there was any improvement yet, and the dog was still having diarrhea and still scratching. When I really come through the history of how strict are you being with this diet, because I think Altamino is a great diet and one that can really help diagnose food allergy if it's truly there, come to find out they've been giving Trifexis the entire time. So two doses within that month period because it started, they started the diet right at that first dose of Trifexis and cream cheese the entire time. I didn't do anything except for treat some infection and take away those things. And now the dog's doing great. And only time will tell, maybe a season will change and there will be environmental allergies there. But that's how much you want to really make sure your history on diet trials is specific. How strict have you been? How long did you give it? What diet are you using? Because that is something that we do not want to miss, identifying a food allergic animal, since food allergy is often a concurrent allergy and not a sole allergy. That often by itself, it can happen definitely identified solely of food allergic dogs, but a lot of food allergic dogs have other types of allergies there too. And we don't want them on more medication than they need to be on. If it's simply because we haven't figured out the food allergy portion. Next is knowing what current medications the pet is on. And I mean like current today, the last week, what have they've gotten? Not just what they fill out on the form or what you've maybe seen they've bought in the past from you or another veterinarian. You need to specifically ask owners what they're doing right now because it's pretty common even if it says they're up to date on fleet control. You see that you know two months ago they bought six months of Sympirica and they must be up to date. Really make sure you know that that animal for sure has been given the fleet control They're for sure given the Apoquil that they just bought a refill of, you know, two weeks ago, because you'd be surprised how many owners aren't actually keeping up the medications, or maybe they thought their husband was doing it, but when they actually talk to their husband, they haven't been giving it. You really want to make sure you know exactly what that pet is getting right now. And then the owners know for sure the pet is receiving that medication because that is something that we don't want to mess up and think that a pet is just not responding to a drug when maybe they're actually not even getting it. And that happens a lot with flea control, you know, thinking that someone in the household has been giving it the first of every month. And then all of a sudden, if they look in the junk drawer, there's like a year's worth of flea control sitting there because no one's actually given the pet the flea control. The next thing is when we're talking about an itchy pet, you really want to be using a true peritic visual analog score. So that's often referred to as the PVAS or the itch scale. And that's the really standardized itch scale that goes from one to 10. And you can find it on the internet um, in several locations. And essentially it gives a one to 10 scale where you can have the owners put a little uh, horizontal line through a scaled vertical line and you could get a hopefully unbiased number of truly how itchy that dog is because you can actually measure where they mark on that line based on some paragraphs of descriptions of what a normal dog or an itchy dog should be. So this is mostly specific for dogs. This is helpful because 
kind of judging what people think is itchy can be really tricky. You can even have owners like married couples or, you know, co-parents of an animal argue over how truly itchy a pet is because itchy can be a subjective thing. Like what I think is not that itchy, which for me, like my own dog has mild allergies and I would probably, you know, rate her pretty low. But because my perspective is I see super itchy animals all day. So it takes a lot for me to think a pet's really, really itchy. My husband's an engineer, you know, he's probably a little bit more particular and thinks that our own allergic dog's itch level is a little higher because he just notices the little bit of licking she does as being abnormal just because he doesn't sit there and stare at itchy dogs all day. So owners can go through that same thing. They can really disagree. So getting a true score on that analog scale where it gives specific things like, you know, they lick all night and keep themselves up versus they just lick themselves occasionally during the day can be really helpful to get a true itch score that you feel like is a representative um, number for that pet. I also find this very helpful when you're doing rechecks because you have something to compare it to. So even if we have a really well-controlled allergy dog, they may still have an itch level of two out of 10 and that's normal. If I get them to an itch level of two out of 10, I'm really happy with how we're doing because that's considered a normal dog. So if I can know that we went from an eight to a two, I'm feeling really great about our therapeutic plan moving forward and that we're at a comfortable level. And it gives you a gauge, right? Because if you have a pet that started out as a, at a 10, but now they're at a four, like you know maybe they're still above normal, but you've made some big, big strides to go from a 10 to a four versus you, if you had a pet at like a five and then they come in for the recheck and they've only gone down to a four, that's gonna strike you a bit differently with how successful you've been with that pet. So really getting an itch history from them, what the pet is today and maybe the worst they've been at certain times of year can be really helpful. Obviously there are other things. There's so many questions that you can ask owner. You know, do they have certain lesions? Are they itchy? Especially if you are really worried that you're seeing a dog that has a 10 out of 10 on the itch scale and maybe there's a potential for something like scabies. Maybe they have a rash and hair loss where you're worried about something like dermatophyte. So certainly asking questions like, you know, have you noticed any lesions on yourself or the animals at home? Are you itchy or any of the other animals at home itchy can be really helpful. Other signs that owners are seeing besides derm issues. So do you see that your pet has gained weight over the last six months? Is the pet PUPD? Are they having diarrhea, vomiting? Are they gassy? Anything like that? Are they showing asthmatic signs? So a lot of my cats who come in and they've been over grooming towards the abdomen and I am worried about something like an environmental allergy, one of the most frequent questions I ask is, do you ever notice your cat having asthmatic signs? So do they wheeze or cough during certain times of the year? Because that truly can be indicative of allergies. The other thing you want to think about asking cat owners if they do see an overgroomed belly is do they notice hairballs? Sometimes because feline owners don't necessarily always see cats being itchy because they're more isolated and they'll hide and they'll they'll really go out their belly when their owners aren't there so they don't see them being itchy is they can get hairballs because they're intaking all of that hair. So if you have a cat come in with a, a bald belly but owners really never see them itch, 
one of the questions you can ask is, well, do they have a lot of hairballs? And if they do, and we're starting to treat the animal to reduce that inflammation and get the allergies under control, I'll actually specifically ask owners to watch the frequency of hairballs they see moving forward and see if they notice that decrease, because that could be a sign that we're not as itchy, even though they don't particularly see them being itchy at home. Again, there's lots of other questions that we're not going to have time to go over today. You know, how frequently do they bathe at home? What shampoos are they using? What topicals? Is the pet indoor-outdoor, especially important for cats um, if we're thinking about flea allergies? Does the pet scoot? Do they have anal gland issues? You know, these are just some of the things that depending on how your conversation is going may pop up. But I hope going over some of the main questions that we ask is really helpful for you guys because I do think history and dermatology is something you do not want to skimp over. You want to give it its time, whether that's on a form that owners fill out ahead of time to make it easier for you, whether it's having your staff ask some of these questions, or if you yourself can become really skilled at asking these questions as you're doing your exam so you can really get a good scope of what's going on but saving yourself some time because derm history is going to save you a lot of frustration it's going to save your clients a lot of frustration if you can pick up on some of these tips to guide your diagnostic workup in the right direction i hope that really helps you guys out gives you some tips that you can really start using today in your practice. Remember, as always, we want to focus on ditching the itch, making derm more fun than frustrating, and cytology everything so we can check those infections. Until the next time that we meet on the podcast to talk about derm issues and derm tips and tricks, I hope you guys are able to become better dermatologists at home and join us for the next episode.